title of this message is called Who Will Possess the Promise? Who Will Possess the Promises of God? Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Moses said, On this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us while we were in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Obviously, we're talking about the mountain of God where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the law, and that was called Horeb. Then he said, You've been here long enough. Uh, Turn and take your journey. Go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland, in the south and the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, See, I have set that land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. Now, the word Deuteronomy, which we're reading out of the book of Deuteronomy, in ancient Greek means second law. In other words, it's a repetition of what God has already said. Moses is once again rehearsing the law, retelling God's laws to a new generation of people that had risen up. In essence, that's what this whole book does. It is a retelling, a repetition, or a reminder of the covenant that God made with his people. More than just a reminder, the book of Deuteronomy also serves as a farewell address for Moses. Moses knows that the Lord will not allow him to enter into the promised land and that he will be succeeded by his successor, by his assistant Joshua. Thus, he takes the time and deliberately reminds the people of Israel of their covenant with God in five different speeches that he makes during the book of Deuteronomy, during its reading. So in this chapter, in this particular chapter, Moses is telling the Israelites as they camped on the other side of the Jordan, it's the east side, but that doesn't mean anything to us, the side of the Jordan that's not in the promised land because they have to cross the Jordan to get into the promised land. So he's talking to them while they're on the east side, outside of the promised land, and what what happened to them the last time they were in the same place. He reminded them of how God led their forefathers, the, the preceding generation, uh, to the land of promise, right where they're at at this, at this particular time. Uh, this was 38 years earlier. Showed them the goodness of the land and how in seeing the land, seeing the goodness of the land, they chose through their unbelief not to enter in and possess the land that God had promised them. Therefore, because of their unbelief, They were forced to wander in the wilderness for 38 years, and now that generation did not go in and possess the promised land. Now their children were going to have the same opportunity, seeing the promised land, seeing the promise of God. They were now going to have the opportunity to choose whether they were going to possess the promise. As their previous generation did not, they were faced with the same choice. What were they going to do? So the first point we're going to look at is that the promise of God is revealed. Deuteronomy 1, 21 through 25, Moses says, Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us on the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. 
This plan pleased me well, so I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came into the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us, and they brought back word to us, saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. So again, let me just remind you, Moses is speaking to the next generation that is about to go into the promised land should they choose, right? But he's reminding them of what happened with the previous generation. The last time we were here, you, the, the previous generation, and when he says you, it's kind of like us. We say you all the time, right? It's kind of like when you get older. You said sometime a couple of years ago. Could have been 10 years ago. Could have been two years ago. Could have been yesterday. But that's just what happens. We just say some time ago, a couple of years ago, we don't know how, and he's just saying you, but he's talking about really what happened the first time they came in, that they said, hey, this is a good land, but let's pick some spies, and let's go spy out the land, and God said it was a good plan, and it ended up being the, the, the will of God, and then Moses uh, uh, is telling them that uh, this land that God has given to you is a good land. Now, as we look at this, I want you to remember that the land of Canaan that God was bringing the Israelites into is also known as the land of promise or the promised land. I've been referring to that, but I want to be very clear about breaking that distinction. It is God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants. It was the promise of God that he gave the Israelites when he revealed it to their ancestor and father Abraham. In Genesis 13, 14 through 17, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes up now and look from the place where you are, north, south, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise and walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. This land of promise, to me, is a type of all the promises of God that God makes to his people. It's the land of promise, but God also has other promises that he makes to us. Today, we also have promises from God as well. So why is this important? Because as God promised Abraham and his future descendants land, so he has made promises to us as his people as well. The principles that are being revealed through God's interaction with the Israelites in this passage as they sought to possess the promised land in the same way also will apply to us as well. As we're going to see with the Israelites, as we see now, God first revealed the promise. He brought them to the land, and he let them see it. They weren't in it yet, but he was spy, they were spying out the land. They were looking at what it is that God wanted them to have. And I want you to know that God lets us see things as well. As we read the Word of God, the Spirit of God will reveal to us by removing the blinders from our eyes, takes the veil off our sight so that we can see the promises of God that He is wanting to realize to us in our life. Maybe you've been a person that has been struggling with sickness and disease, infirmity and affliction. You go to the Word of God, and all of a sudden, the Spirit of God begins to highlight to you that God is our healer. All throughout the Word of God, there are promises that God has made that I am your healer. On none of the disease that I put on the Egyptians will I put upon you. Jesus said he carried our sicknesses and he bore our 
pains. By his stripes we are healed. Uh, he uh, forgives all our iniquities. He heals all our diseases. You may have read that over and over and over again, and you're just learning. It's knowledge. It's good. But all of a sudden, now the Spirit of God lets you see it in a different way where you begin to realize, hey, this is a promise of God for me. Now, it could be financial promises. It could be uh, promises with healing. It could be promises of freedom and peace. Uh, if you're going through, maybe you're struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with fear, God has a promise. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. There are many promises in the Bible that when God is revealing them to you, He takes the veil off your eyes to see them, even though they've always been there. It's like, I've never seen that before. That's what we call revelation. In Greek, it's, it's the word apocalyptus, apocalypto. You know, and what that means is that it's always been there. You're just, we're not able to see it. God removes the veil, and you see something, not something new, but it's something new to you because you've never seen it before. Am I making sense to you, right? So God lets us, as the people of God, see things as well. He takes the veil off our sight to see the promises of God that he is wanting us to realize in our lives. That brings us to the second point. In the people that we look at here, God revealed to them their promise, but then the promise of God to them was rejected. Deuteronomy 1, 26 through 33. Nevertheless, you, talking about the previous generation, would not go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you complained in your tents, and you said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us up out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we've seen the sons of the Anakin there. That's They call those giants. Then I said to you, do not be afraid or afraid of them. Moses is telling them, because the Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you. Now, what does that mean? He will fight for you, but you're going to have to go up. You have a part to play. Remember what I said before. We want everything that God wants for us. We just don't want to do it. We don't, have to, we don't want to have a part to play. We don't want to do our part. We just want God to give it to us. Give me everything you got, God. Okay, I want to give, but you have a part to play. And so Moses is saying, don't be terrified, don't be afraid. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you he, according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that he went until you came into this place. Yet for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God. He went in the, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents to show you the way that you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. So when the Israelites saw the promised land, the land of promise, and we'll say the promise of God, when it became real to them, God reassured them that this is indeed what he wanted for them. It's not, this promise is yours. The land is yours. I have given it to you. Not I will give it to you. I gave it to you. But in order to experience the promise of God, you've got to go in and possess the promise of God. However, possessing of the promises of God would require the Israelites to trust God as he brought them the promise into fruition in their lives. 
Now, the spies were telling the truth. There were tall people in that land. There were obstructions in that land. And what often happens is when God reveals a promise to you, what if you're not careful, you begin to look at the obstacles instead of the promise. You begin to look at the things that stand in the way instead of what God is saying in his word. And we allow the negative circumstances, we allow the problems, we allow the false or the, or the, or the reports that are the, of the enemy that is so big to overcome our trust in God who is bigger. And here's the thing, when God speaks, he speaks with assurance and he speaks with a still, small voice. When the enemy speaks, he also speaks with assurance, but he speaks with a shout. And what often happens is that we, you ever heard the expression, the, the, the squeaky wheel gets all the grease? So the wheel that screams the loudest is the one that we focus on. And the enemy screams loud. And so he begins to say things like, you're not coming in here. You're not going to get this. In fact, we're going to overcome you. We're, it's like when David and the Israelites came against Goliath. The Goliath is bigger than anything they've ever seen before. And he's not just bigger. He looks the part. He dresses in great big armor, carries a great big shield. And he says, you pick one of you guys, and I'll pick one of mine, and I'll come out with for mine uh, a side of the, uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of, of, of the coin. I'll come out for, my, for our people. You pick one and come out for your people, and whoever wins, that side will win. Of course, he comes out with this big, huge monstrosity of a man, and guess who God comes up with? A small wee little lad by the name of David. And it's kind of like the enemy says, okay, you want to do that? You're going to lose badly. But God says, I don't need much. Because it's not about the person. It's about the God that's with the person. But I do need someone that will trust me. I do need someone that is willing to stand against all obstacles and all odds, stand in the face of the enemy, and let me be the God that guides the rock that they throw. I need them to do that. And you say, well, God doesn't need anything. You're right, he doesn't need anything, but in his sovereignty, this is how he chose to work. He chose to work with people. We often think that, hey, man, I've got to do it. If God tells me something, I've got to do it. No, you don't have to do it. God's going to do it, but you've got to be available and cooperate with God. You hear what I'm saying? So the Israelites would have to move into the land and to dispossess the enemy that was on the land in order to possess the promise that he was given to them. They had a part to play, but God had told them, don't worry about it. I delivered you through out of Egypt. I delivered you through the wilderness, and I'm going to deliver you here. Don't forget everything that I've done, but guess what? The Israelites forgot everything he'd done. Forgive me for the bad grammar, but it was good preaching. They forgot everything he had done because the moment was more important to the Israelites than what God had said and who God was in their life. And how often do we get derailed by the crisis of the moment? Right? 
I thank you, God. You find a promise you've been struggling with an anger problem. I thank you, God, that you're my peace. You quote him. You, God, you are my peace. He is our peace. He has broken down every wall. Uh, cast all your cares on the Lord, for he careth for you. You know, you begin to quote all these promises, and he said, I know God's given me victory, and then somebody cuts you off and traffic and and all of a sudden two fingers you don't know where they came from and all of a sudden a, a horn you don't realize it could beep that loud starts and you're looking and you're going ah! where'd that come from and there's a little mirror there in front of you and if you look in the mirror you'll see where it came from you're going to be challenged the enemy always challenged what god wants to do in your life but god is still true his word is still true and you have to trust in him amen Deuteronomy 2, 24 through 25, God said through, the, through Moses, Rise, take your journey, cross over the river. Look, I've given you into your hand this enemy that you're worried about, Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it. Engage him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and the fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and you shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. In other words, listen, I'm going to do something unique. He said, when you come into the land, I said, my presence is going to overshadow you. And, and wherever you go, my presence is going to go with you. And I'm going to cause the enemy to tremble. But if you don't walk in the land, you see, I'm with you. I'm with you. And so if you will go, watch what I will do. But you got to go. Well, God, if you just clear the land first, right, then I'll go in. No, you go in, engage the enemy, and I will clear the land. Possessing the promise of God will always require that we walk them out. And they will require that we do so in the midst of situations where the circumstances appear contrary to what God has said. That's why we don't possess the promises by sight, but we possess them by faith. <laughs> we trust God, not because of the circumstances, but in spite of the circumstances. God said it, and I believe it. Listen, Peter is not the brightest stick in the bunch but he wasn't talking out of logic when jesus showed up in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm he showed up walking on the water he wasn't thinking it through he was talking out of his spirit and he said jesus if that is you bid me come out on the water that's the last thing i would have said but he said if it's you bid me come out in the water jesus said come right what are you going to do when god says come still raining still storming Still, uh, still the, the waves are still going. You're still, you're, 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 your boat is being tossed, and Jesus said, jump over the side and do what I'm doing. What are you going to look at? Are you going to look at the Word of God and what Jesus is doing, or are you going to allow the storm and the wind and the rain and the waves, or are you going to allow those to keep you from following the Word of God in your life? Well, if God would just steal the storm, if God would take this and He would stop the waves and He would do this, then, then I would try and do what God said to do. But that, see, that's my point. My point is He doesn't. Rarely does it happen that way because you've got to trust the Word of God, not the circumstances. You've got to trust what he said, not what you see. We walk by faith, not by 
sight. Thomas said, if I can just see the wound in your side and put my finger in where you were, then I will believe. And Jesus showed up because, because he needed Thomas for the 12 apostles and all that kind of stuff. He was just merciful. He showed up and he said, Thomas, put your hand in my side, put your finger in my hands. And he said, uh, he said my Lord and my God. And he said to Thomas, he said, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe even though they have not seen. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, not by what I see. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Right? The Israelites chose to believe the report of the fear instead of the report of faith. And instead of trusting God by moving into the promise, they chose to not believe God, and they chose to disobey God, and they refused to take hold of the promise. In another passage that I'm reading in the book of Deuteronomy, it actually called it rebellion. What is rebellion? Refusing to believe God and refusing to obey God. Why did they refuse to believe and to obey? Because the enemy was there pretending to be bigger than God. But it doesn't matter they still refuse to obey God. Faith believes God. Faith trusts God, not because of the circumstances, but in spite of the circumstances. So it says in Hebrews 3, 19 through 4, 2, So we see that they, this generation, could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since the promise remains of entering to his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For in the, the, indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. I like the translation that says, I think it's in the, in the King James Version, it says, they did not mingle the word of God with faith. The word of God without faith won't do you any good. It's still true, and it's still good, but it won't do you any good until you mingle it with faith. <laughs> Man, this is too much. This is too hard. It is the way of God. I didn't promise to teach you an easy way. I promised to teach you the way of God. Right? We could probably have a bigger church if I taught you an easier way. But the Bible says, uh, broad is the way, another translation, easier is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Listen, there's a lot of things I could teach you that would be easier for you, but they would be unprofitable for you because they're not based on the Word of God. Going to church, saying a confession, living in sin, that's a broad way. That's an easier way, but it's not God's way. God's way is repent of your sins, and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and then walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So anyway, let's get back to our text. Got off on a rabbit trail. I do like rabbits. Anyway, it, what we need to realize, it's the same for us today. Remember, these principles apply to us as well. That's why the writer of Hebrews is using this incident as an example to the present-day believers he was writing to, and it's why this incident has purpose and meaning for us today. In order to possess the promises of God, in order to see them come to fruition in our lives, it requires the same out of us. 
It requires that we mingle faith with the Word of God that He is revealing to us, and it requires that we move forward in faith, believing God despite the report of the circumstances that are presently surrounding you. Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to the salvation for everyone. Stop there. Is that what it says? No. For everyone who believes. That word belief implies faith, puts their faith in the word of God puts their faith in the truth of God. For everyone who puts their faith, it is the power of God to those who believe. That word salvation, well, I gave my life to Christ, but it's, that's, it means more than that. Salvation actually means wholeness in every area of your life. God wants you to be free in every area of your life. God wants you to be whole in every area of your life. He wants you to be whole, spirit, soul, body, relationships, finances, every area of your life. He wants you to be whole. When he died on the cross of Calvary, it wasn't just so you could get to heaven. It's so that you could be made whole. Please don't misunderstand me. I didn't say that God doesn't want you to get to heaven. I said that's not the sole reason for which he died. He died that you might be saved, and the word salvation means wholeness. Now, when you accept Christ, you will go to heaven. But he died for more than just for you to go to heaven. He wanted the kingdom of God to manifest within us. He wanted his power to manifest within us. Well, why is it that I'm saved, but I'm experiencing illness, sickness, disease? Why am I experiencing poverty? Why am I experiencing all these things in my life? It's because you have a part to play. You've got to find out what does the Word of God teach you? What are the promises of God in your life? And then you've got to mingle faith with the promise, and then you've got to act in accordance to the Word, not accordance to your circumstances. If we were talking financially, right? It's just easy to talk finances because it's just, it just makes sense to most people because one plus one equals two, right? Most people that are struggling financially, when they hear the Word of God, they get excited because God teaches that He wants to prosper His people. The only problem is, their struggle is, how am I going to give when I don't have enough money to give? Because God's Word says, if you want to get, you've got to give. If you want a harvest, you got to plant seed. Now, I know, I changed metaphors, right? The, there was a, there's a scripture in the Old Testament that says um, they, um, they sowed in tears, but they reaped with joy or gladness. Why were they sowing in tears? Because sowing in tears, they, they understood that, you see, the same seed that you eat is the same seed that you sow. And when you, when you need to eat your seed, the last thing, or you want to eat your seed, the last thing you want to do is deny yourself the ability to eat a meal so that you can plant it. But you have to plant your seed if you want to reap a harvest down the road. You can eat your seed now, but you won't have a harvest. And see, what happens is most of us want to eat our seed and then expect a harvest down the road. But you're not going to get a harvest if you don't plant your seed. But in order to plant your seed, you're going to have to deny yourself in the short term so you can have a long-term blessing. 
Most people that come to church and they're struggling financially, that's the struggle they have. How can I give when I don't have enough to eat? I have more month than I do paycheck. How can I give? It can't be. And see, that's what the Israelites were struggling with. How can we go in there when these guys are bigger than us, more powerful than us? Uh, we, we're just a bunch of housewives and servants and slaves and, 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 and janitors, and you want us to go in and conquer this people? It's amazing when there are no problems. There's soldiers and kings and king's kids and all that kind of stuff. But whenever there's a problem, it's like, I'm just a janitor. I'm just a little housewife. The only thing that's changed is your circumstance. You are who God says you are. You're God's children. You're sons and daughters of a king. The spirit of living Christ lives inside of you. Do you understand? That doesn't change because your circumstances change. What happens is you get your eyes off what God says and you get your eyes on the problem. So how do I deal with my financial problem? You've got to begin to believe what God says over the circumstances, and you've got to begin to sow however God leads you to sow, paying your tithes, giving. You do what God asks you to do. When it doesn't make sense, when it doesn't add up, just like Peter said, bid me to come unto you, and I'll come. And he stepped out on the water. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. But when he believed God's word, he walked on water. When you trust God and do what he says, God does what he says. doesn't have to add up here. It's a supernatural principle. What was it that I said this morning about supernatural? You remember, Anna? What was that? Do you remember what I... You don't remember. She wasn't listening to me. Oh, Lord. Oh, I remember. Thank you. She sign language to me. Got it. I got the sign. People will get on a plane. I've been on many planes. Anybody ever been on a plane? One person has been on a plane in our congregation. All right. We need to go on a mission trip. A lot of people get on a plane, and I promise you, you don't know how that plane goes up in the air. You have no clue how that plane, which weighs hundreds of tons, flies on what seems to be nothing. But you got no problem getting on that plane. You just trust that what you see is going to take place when you get on there. You get on there by faith. Not realizing that there's a principle of lift that allows that plane to fly. It's not, it's not it overcomes, you know, gravity. It's a principle of lift that is greater than the principle of gravity. You don't know all that. You just get on. So when God says something, and that's a natural idea that's, that I'm trying to get you to understand. When God says something, you don't understand. There are spiritual laws you know nothing about. And when you do what he says, even though it would never make sense to you, you may not understand it. When you comply, it kicks in a spiritual law that you don't know how it's going to happen. And when God's spiritual law, it's not that it, it, it's, it, 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 it negates the natural law, it overcomes the natural law. How is this going to work? How is it going to do if I give this and I do that? How did it work for the woman that Elijah came and said, you feed me your last meal first and you will never run out? What happened? The law of faith kicked in, a supernatural law, and the supernatural law started to multiply food that never ran out for three and a half years. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are, we don't have to figure it out. 
We just have to trust that God knows what he's doing, right? So in order to possess the promises, we've got to believe God. For it is the power of God to those who believe. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It, it's, it's for anybody who will, or what's your age. It's for anybody who will believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith, for faith, the just shall live by faith. Mark eleven twenty two through 24, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Or I like the translation that says, have a God-like kind of faith. What does the faith of God look like? For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and Jesus was looking at a literal mountain. It could have been the, a mount of olives. We don't know. He was looking at it. The disciples were looking at it. And he says, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now, you've got to understand the context. The context is you believe this is the will of God. You believe this is what God wants done. There's an obstacle in the way, but God says to me, go up against the obstacle. In this particular case, how do I do that? God says, stand against the problem. Speak to the problem. What do I speak? The will of God. What do I speak? The word of God. Well, how in the world is that going to do anything? It's going to do something because when you stand by faith and you do your part, God does his part. You're not going to move the mountain. God's going to move the mountain, but he needs someone willing to stand up and say, mountain, be removed. Remember when Moses was complaining about crossing the Red Sea and the Israelites were complaining and God, and, and God said to Moses, why are you complaining to me? Get out there in front of the Israelites and lift up your staff. Moses had to do his part. He had to use the authority that God had given to him and he had to lift that staff up over the sea and when he did that, the Bible says the wind of God began to blow. God began to do his part when Moses did his part. Moses didn't part the sea. God parted the sea, but Moses had to do his part for God to do his part. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So whenever there's a problem in your life, what could that problem be? It could be a financial problem. It could be a physical problem. Maybe you've been uh, given a report that is a negative report, and it's, it's a report that says you're going to die. What do you do? You find out what the will of God is for your life, and then you stand against the problem. Don't deny the problem. Don't avoid the problem. Stand in front of the problem and declare God's will over the problem. Now, I'm telling you, the problem will talk back. It will say, I ain't moving, I ain't going, I ain't doing nothing, right? And Bobby says, and it might even bite you sometimes. That's what happened with Paul. When Paul was doing everything right, and here he is in jail, and he's on a prison ship, but he, the, the angel of God speaks to him. He's been praying. The angel of God, everybody's going to get saved, you know, out of this disaster. And sure enough, they were. They found themselves on an island, and it was raining. And so Paul says, I want to help these people. I want, I want, they're, they're cold. I want to help them. So he's gathering firewood to, to, to feed the fire. And while he's gathering this firewood, here comes a serpent, and latches on his hand. And everybody's looking at him and saying, man, you must be really a bad dude. The first you're a prisoner, then you're in a prison wreck, and now all of a sudden you're delivered, and then here comes a snake and bites you on the hand. I said, you must be. Not. When I say bad dude, I'm not talking about, hey, man, you bad. I'm talking about you're bad. There's something wrong with you. The gods must be against you. That's what they were thinking because they weren't Christian at the time. But you know what Paul did? Shook it off. You know why he shook it off? Because he had a word from God that he had to be in Rome. 
God said to him, I need you in Rome. And so when the enemy comes up and bites him, he looks at it with the word of God. And I, I don't, we don't have a record of what he said, but I believe he said, no, I, God told me I'm going to be in Rome. I shake you off in the name of Jesus. You are not going to keep me from fulfilling my purpose and destiny in my life because this is the will of God and the word of God to me. So what was he doing? He was standing against the obstacle, standing against the problem with the Word of God. And then it says, and he will have whatever he says. It doesn't say it in this translation, but the context is whatever he says and continues to say in front of the problem that is trying to deny him God's will for your life. You can't just say it once and quit. Well, how long do I got to stand on this thing until God begins to move? Elijah had to pray seven times until there was a cloud in the, in the, in, in the sky as small as a man's hand when he said it was going to rain. It hadn't rained for three and a half years. He went to pray. He prayed once, no rain. Prayed twice, no rain. Prayed three times. How many of us would have given up by then? But he heard the word of the Lord, so he prayed. How long did he pray until he, until he saw the evidence of God doing what he said he was going to do? And in a way, what he was doing is he was speaking to the mountain. He was speaking to the famine. He was speaking to the, to the drought. And he was saying, in the name of Jesus, you're going to reign. The sky was saying, no, I'm not. The land was saying, no, it's not. But he said, the will of the Lord is you will reign, and I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to back off. I'm not going to quit until the word of God that God promised me comes to fruition. You will reign. Getting a little excited. I'm sorry. We can invite somebody in next week that's a little more mellow, if you want. The Israelites didn't trust that God was enough to bring them into the promises, and so they were not able to possess the promise and spent the rest of their lives wandering in the desert. So what is it that we can learn and should learn from this is that when God reveals his promise to you, we must mix the word with faith to see that come to fruition. If we fail to do so, we will not see those promises manifest in our life, just like with the Israelites. So the promise of God, and this, this last part is not very long, the promise of God still remains. Deuteronomy one thirty four through 40. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land of which I swore to give to your forefathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was also angry with me, Moses saying, for your sake, saying, even he shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before me, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. When that generation of Israelites had died out that refused to go in, the next generation of Israelites were again brought to the brink of the land of promise. They were shown the goodness of what God had in store for them, and they were admonished and encouraged to possess that which their forefathers had not. They were given the same opportunity to walk out the promises by trusting, by believing God to bring them into them. My point is the promises of God revealed to us in His Word are still there waiting for a generation of believers to possess them. You and I, will we possess the promises of God? Ephesians 1, 
and 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. And as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 2 Corinthians 1 and 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen means so be it. I come into agreement with it. I come into alignment with the promises of God for my life. All these promises of God, as God reveals them to us, as he lets us see them, are there for us to possess. But in order to possess them, we must, by faith, like Abraham, walk out those promises in our lives. Romans 4, 20 through 22. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform, and therefore it was accounted or accredited to him for righteousness. What was Esther told about her opportunity to do something for God? If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. In other words, somebody's going to possess this promise. Somebody's going to join with me and do the work, but you and your father's house will perish just like the Israelites in the wilderness. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther said, I'm going in. She was going into the king at the point of death, but she says, I'm going in. This is my moment. This is my opportunity to trust God and believe God for God to do something in the lives of my people. And I'm going to take that opportunity. I'm going to believe God no matter what it costs me. I'm going to go in. Esther, someone will believe God and rise to the challenge. If not you, God will raise someone else up to do so. But the opportunity to do so is now being given to you, Esther. Will you believe and trust God enough to act on the opportunity he has placed on, on you? And she said yes. And what I want you to see is that there are promises that God is now bringing you into. He is revealing them to you. He is letting you see them. And, and Moses, now I'm not Moses, but the Spirit of God that was talking through Moses is speaking through me through the prophetic words he's speaking through the tongues and interpretations he's speaking through the word of God and he's saying I want you to possess the promise I'm revealing it to you what will you do previous generations have gone in but generations that came after them did not they didn't possess the promise they lost what other generations had because by faith they weren't willing to mingle their faith with the promises of God I'm bringing you back and now I'm asking you what are you going to do In our text, Caleb and Joshua did believe. There were only two people that believed God. And God said, I don't care how long it's going to take, but they're going to possess my promises. And 40 years later, they went into the promised land because they said, I believe God. Joshua 14, 10 through 14, And now behold the Lord, but Caleb is talking, has kept me alive these 45 years ever since the Lord spoke this word. Every one of his generation is dying, 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 dying. And the world is dying. But God said, I'm not going to die. And sure enough, he and Joshua are the last ones standing. And they said, we didn't die. Why? Because God said we were going in. And here I am this day, 85 years old, and yet I'm as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war. 
for war, to do battle. When you believe God and trust God, you are going to war. You are doing battle, not with God. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. This is another scripture, but it's the same thing. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Powers, principalities, rulers are the things that we do wrestle against. But you got to go to war. you got to battle against the enemy that wants to keep you and hinder you from everything that God wants to have in your life and wants you to have in your life. Now, therefore, Caleb said, Give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb as an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jeshua, the Kenazite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. So I want you to get this. Notice it said that, what Caleb possessed by faith became the inheritance of the descendants who followed him. And this is what I want to challenge you. We do have a little bit older congregation. Turn to your next door neighbor and said, he's not talking about me. <laughs> right? You said, well, I'm about to go be with the Lord. What does it matter? We need to have the spirit of Caleb. We need to realize that it does matter because everything you possess, your children and your children's children get to partake of. I want us to possess the promises of God so that our children can experience those promises that we pressed into. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So that our ceiling becomes their floor. I'm tired of the church living selfishly just about what's good for me. I want us to learn how to live multi-generationally. I want us to live in such a way that I'm not going to take it all, but I'm going to take as much as I can so that my children can take more for God. So we can go farther than we've ever gone in Christ, in manifesting what God Jesus paid for at the cross of Calvary. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I'm ready for us, so I'm, I'm talking to everybody here. I'm ready for us as a church to break the mold to stop living entitled, to stop living just for today, to just stand around waiting for Jesus to come back in the clouds. We need to, Jesus to come back. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. But till he comes back, I want to possess everything that I can. I'm not being arrogant. I'm not being egotistical. I believe it's the will of God that we do something with what he gave us. He said, occupy until I come. When he comes back, are we going to pull our talent out of the ground and say, I didn't do anything with it, but at least I have what you gave me? Or are we going to say, Lord, I took what you gave me and I multiplied it, and it's doing things for the kingdom of God. I believed you for everything that I could. I saw in your word that not only can we be healed, but we can walk in health and wholeness. I'm seeing some of it. I'm not seeing all of it, but I'm going to walk it out. I want to be the one that when it's time to go, God's going to have to speak to me and say, Rick, it's time to go. I know you've been believing me and walking out, and you haven't had any sickness or disease and all that kind of stuff, but you can't live past 120. I've got to take you home sometime. 
so tomorrow is the day. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We get so comfortable with, well, I'm going to get cancer and die, or I'm going to get this and die. Why do we have to die that way? Right? I want to press God. I want, I, want, I want to see rheumatoid arthritis dealt a death blow. I want to see lameness and paralysis dealt a death blow. I want to see cancer bowed down before the Lord. Well, guess what? It's, it's going to take a battle. It's going to take the Word of God. It's going to take a people of God that will believe. But if we can, as a people, not just as an individual, but as a people, come to a place where we recognize that this is the land, this is the promise He has given to us, and we begin to say what God has promised, we will possess, and nothing will stop us, not because of who we are, but because of who it is that lives in us. I believe that we can become a beacon and a light to the world that has no answer but God. You say, well, yeah, you're, you're out there on the water. Yes. That's where I want us to be. Out on the water. Not playing it safe in the boat. Now, how do I finish this? Because I'm done with my notes. But how do I bring this to a conclusion? God is good. He is awesome. He is greater than anything we can imagine or conceive. And I want you to know that God is for you, not against you. At the cross of Calvary, Jesus paved the way for us to walk out a victorious, overcoming lifestyle, but not without a battle, not without a fight, not for selfish reasons, but to, so that he might be glorified and the kingdom of God can be expanded can be increased while we walk this planet are you hearing what i'm saying there's nothing that we can take with us when we die everything that we do in this planet we leave behind we can uh, lay up treasures on in heaven but everything we do in this planet we leave behind so why not leave this planet better than what we saw when we came into it and how do we do that by believing god <laughs>